Part twelve of The Secret of Everyday Things by Jean Henri Fabre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter thirty four. Tea. Have you ever examined carefully the grounds in the bottom of a pot of tea? A pinch of tiny round bluish black grains is put into hot water. After seeping, these round grains are found to have turned into easily recognizable little leaves. Yes, indeed. Marie made haste to reply. I have seen the grains of tea swell in hot water, unfold, and finally spread out into little leaves. Tea must come, then, from the foliage of some sort of plant. You are right. Tea is the leaf of a shrub, of which this picture will give you an idea. It is an evergreen shrub, two meters or more in height, its foliage tuft-like and shiny, its flowers white, and its seeds in the form of small capsules in clusters of three. Its cultivation is confined to China and Japan. Footnote. Since 1876, tea has been grown in increasing quantities in Ceylon, Natal, Brazil, and the West Indies, and some of our southern states have also tried, with varying success, to raise the plant. Translator. End of footnote. In China, the tea plantations occupy sunny hillsides in the vicinity of watercourses, the leaves are gathered, not by the handful, but one by one, and with the utmost care. Minute as such work appears to be, it is done rapidly by trained hands, one person being able to pick from five to six kilograms a day. The first picking occurs toward the end of the winter, when the buds open, and let the nascent leaves expand. This harvest is considered the best of all, and is called imperial tea, being reserved for the princes and rich families of China. The second picking takes place in the spring. At this time some of the leaves have finished growing, while others have not yet reached their full size. Nevertheless they are all gathered indiscriminately, and then picked over and assorted according to their age, dimensions, and quality. The third and last picking is made toward the middle of summer, when the leaves are of a tuft-like appearance, and have attained their full growth. This is the coarsest and least esteemed kind of tea. When the harvest is over, its completion is celebrated by public festivals and rejoicings. The harvesting of this leaf must then be a very important event to the Chinese, observed Claire. Yes, because tea is the customary drink of the Chinese, being to them what wine is to us, and tea also furnishes them one of the most important articles of commerce. Isn't that reason enough for public rejoicing, especially in a country where everything pertaining to agriculture is held in high honor? Before taking the form of tea as we know it, the leaves have to undergo a certain preparation. This work is done in public establishments where there are little furnaces about a meter high, on each of which is placed an iron plate. When the plate is hot enough, the operator spreads the newly gathered leaves on it in a thin layer. While they are shriveling and crackling in contact with the burning iron, they are stirred briskly with the naked hand until the heat can no longer be endured. Then the operator removes the leaves with a sort of fan-shaped shovel and throws them onto a table covered with mats. Around this table sit other workers who take the hot leaves in small quantities and roll them between their hands, always in the same direction. Still others fan them continually after they are rolled so as to cool them as quickly as possible and thus preserve the curled shapes they have just received. This manipulation is repeated two or three times in order to drive out all moisture from the leaves and give them a permanent curl. Each time the plate is heated less, and the drying is conducted more carefully and slowly. The use of tea spread to Europe toward the middle of the seventeenth century. 
it is said that about this time some dutch adventurers knowing that the chinese made their customary drink from the leaves of a shrub grown in their country took it into their heads to carry them a european plant sage to which great virtues were attributed in those days the chinese accepted this new article of commerce and in exchange gave them some tea which the dutch took back to europe but the use of the european herb was of short duration in china whereas tea was so highly appreciated in europe that it soon came into general use there is a tradition in china much like the one current in arabia concerning coffee according to this tradition a certain pious and noble personage dharma by name went from india to china thirteen or fourteen centuries ago to spread the knowledge of the true god in that country in order to stimulate the people by his own example he led a very austere life imposing the severest mortifications on himself and consecrating his days and nights to prayer worn out by fatigue after a few years and finally overcome by drowsiness it sometimes happened that in spite of himself he would fall asleep in the very midst of his meditations in order to keep himself awake and continue his pious exercises without interruption he had recourse to the frightful expedient of cutting off his eyelids which he threw on the ground heaven was moved to pity by this heroic sacrifice the holy man's eyelids took root in the soil as if they had been seeds and there sprang from them during the night a graceful shrub covered with leaves that was the first tea-plant the next morning passing by the same place the mutilated holy man glanced down at the spot where he had thrown his eyelids he could not find them but in their place he saw the divine shrub to which they had given birth a secret inspiration prompted of him to eat the leaves of this miraculous shrub and he obeyed the impulse to his great satisfaction he soon found that this nourishment strengthened him drove sleep away and kept his mind active he advised his disciples to eat of the shrub also and the fame of tea spread far and wide its general use in china dating from that time i need not tell you that this tradition is really only a fable emphasizing the dominant properties of tea just as the arabian legend concerning the capering of goats and the wakefulness of the dervish is based on those of coffee a shrub sprang from the eyelids which a holy man had cut off in order not to succumb to sleep ought above all to prevent sleep tea shares this singular property with coffee an infusion of its leaves acts on the nerves when it is taken strong and in considerable doses taken in moderation it is an agreeable drink stimulating the stomach and aiding the process of digestion the various kinds of tea known to commerce are classed according to the size of their grains as pearl teas and gunpowder teas the former having larger grains than the latter they are divided again according to color into green teas and black teas green teas having a bitter and pungent taste and a strong odor excite the nerves and prevent sleep black teas do not have this property in so pronounced a degree being less stimulating weaker and not so strongly scented the preparation of tea calls for the same care as that of coffee it should not be boiled as that would dissipate the odor and take away the crowning excellence of the beverage with us tea is hardly more than a medicine used to alleviate certain stomach troubles but in many countries besides china it is a daily drink appearing on the table several times in twenty-four hours in england the european country most addicted to this drink the annual consumption amounts to twenty-five million kilograms chapter thirty five chocolate in the hottest countries of the two americas notably in mexico the antilles and guiana there is cultivated a tree of about the size of our cherry tree called the cacao or chocolate tree 
What a queer name that is, cacao, Claire exclaimed. Not a bit like any of our fruit trees. This queer name came down to us from the primitive inhabitants of Mexico, a people who tattooed their red skin with horrible designs and wore their hair standing up in a menacing tuft adorned with hawk's feathers. Their language was composed of harsh guttural sounds, which to our delicate ears would seem more like the croaking of frogs than the speech of human beings. You have a sample in the name of the tree I've just mentioned. The Mexicans, when the Spanish visited them for the first time under the lead of Fernando Cortez, soon after the discovery of America by Columbus, were devoting careful attention to the cultivation of the cacao tree, from which they obtained their chief article of food, chocolate. The same chocolate that is used for making those delicious tablets we all like so much? asked Jules. The same, at least as far as the essential ingredients are concerned. We owe the invention of chocolate to the ancient savages of Mexico, ferocious Indians, who honored their idols by offering them human victims whose throats they cut with a sharp edge of a flint. The tree that furnishes the chief constituent of our chocolate confectionery is the cacao, the name of which sounds so harsh to your ears. This tree grows, as I have said, about the size of our cherry tree. Its leaves are large, smooth, and bright green. Small pink flowers grouped in little clusters along the branches are succeeded by fruit having the shape and size of our cucumbers, with ten raised longitudinal ribs as in melons. These cacao pods, as they are called, turn to a dark red when ripe. Their contents are composed of soft white flesh, pleasantly acid, in which are embedded from thirty to forty seeds as large as olives and covered with a tough skin. Freed from all these wrappings, the seeds take the name of cacao nibs and constitute the essential ingredient of chocolate. Much as in the case of coffee, cacao, also called cocoa, is first roasted, a process that turns the white kernels to a dark brown. That is the origin of the brown color of chocolate. After roasting, the hard skin that covers the kernels is broken up and thrown away. Then the kernels themselves, first thoroughly cleaned, are crushed on a very hard polished stone with the aid of another stone or an iron roller. These kernels are rich in fat somewhat resembling our ordinary butter, and hence called cacao butter. There is butter in those seeds, real butter such as we get from milk, asked Claire. Yes, my dear, real butter, or something very similar. Of what do the cow and sheep make the butter that we get from their milk? Evidently of the grass that they eat. What wonder is it, then, that vegetation should be able to produce butter, if it can supply animals with the materials for butter? I hope to come back to this subject some day, and you will see that in reality plants prepare the food that animals give us. But let us return to cacao butter. To keep this fatty substance fluid and thus facilitate the working of the paste, it is customary to place live coals under the stone on which the seeds are being crushed. With a little heat the vegetable butter melts and forms, with the solid matter of the seeds, a soft brown paste that can be easily kneaded. With this paste is mixed, as carefully as possible, an equal weight of sugar, then some flavoring extract, usually vanilla, to give aroma to the product, and the work is done. There is nothing further needed except to mold the still soft chocolate into cakes. Such is the composition of chocolate of superior quality. But for the cheaper grades demanded by the trade, it is customary to mix in certain ingredients of less cost than cocoa, as, for example, the starchy constituent of potatoes, corn, beans, and peas. It is even said, but my faith in the honor of the manufacturers makes me hesitate to believe it, 
that they are so-called chocolates in which not a particle of cocoa is present. Sugar, potato flour, fat, and powdered brick are said to be the ingredients. "'And that horrid trash is sold?' asked Marie incredulously. "'Yes, it is sold. Its low price attracts purchasers.' "'If they offered it to me for nothing, I wouldn't take it,' Claire asserted. "'What a queer thing to eat! A cake of brick!' "'It is never true economy to buy very cheap things. "'The manufacturer and the merchant must make their profit, "'and yet the buyer is always trying to beat down the price. "'So what does the manufacturer do? "'He substitutes something worthless for a part or all of what has real value, "'and then sells his goods at whatever price you please. "'He gives you something for your money, it is true.' but oftener than not you are outrageously cheated. You have, let us say, only a penny to spend on a cake of chocolate. You will get the chocolate, but it will contain very little cocoa, or none at all, a great deal of potato flour, and perhaps some powdered brick. You think you have driven a sharp bargain. In reality you have been sadly duped. For your penny you could have bought several potatoes, which would have been a far better investment. And the powdered brick besides, if you really care for that sort of thing, Always be suspicious of marked-down goods, my children. The low price is low, only in appearance, and much exceeds the real value of the goods. Chapter 36 Spices When we speak of spices, we mean those vegetable substances of aromatic odor and hot and pungent taste that are used to heighten the flavor of food and aid digestion. The principal ones are pepper, clove, cinnamon, nutmeg, and vanilla. Pepper is the fruit of a shrub called the pepper plant. You have often seen those little round black grains with such a pungent taste that are used for seasoning certain kinds of food, sausages, for example. Those are the berries of the pepper plant just as the bush produces them. And do those grains, when they are powdered, give pepper? asked Jules, such as we see on the table every day beside the salt cellar? Exactly, replied Uncle Paul. The culture of the pepper plant is successful only in the hottest parts of the world, chiefly in two of the Sunda Islands, Sumatra and Java. It is a shrub with a slender and flexible stalk, having the form of a runner and winding around neighboring tree trunks. Its leaves are oval, leathery and shiny, its blossoms small, grouped in long and slender hanging clusters. And its berries, which are no larger than our currants, are first green and finely red when ripe. Pepper is gathered when the bunches begin to turn red. The harvested berries are put to dry on mats in the sun, whereupon they soon turn black and wrinkled, taking thereafter the name of black pepper. As their sharp flavor is confined chiefly to the outside integument of the berry, this is sometimes stripped off in order to obtain a less pungent variety of pepper. For this purpose the freshly gathered berries are soaked in water, which makes them swell and crack their outer skin. After that they are exposed to the sun, and when dry, all that needs to be done is to rub them between the hands, and then fan them to blow away the exterior covering. This process gives white pepper, which is much milder than the black. If you examine somewhat attentively a single grain of the spice called cloves, after letting it soak some time in water until it becomes swollen and expanded, you will easily perceive it to be a flower. Cloves are, in fact, the blossoms of a tree called the clove tree, gathered and dried in the sun before they are full-blown. The upper part of these blossoms, being rounded like a button, bears some resemblance to the head of a nail. The lower part, which is long and slender, is not unlike their pointed portion, 
From this rough resemblance comes the name of clove, which is connected with the Latin clavus and the French clou, meaning nail. The Moluccas, or Spice Islands, are the home of the clove. It is a fine tree, about fifteen meters high, with slender branches, oval and shiny leaves, and very strong scented flowers grouped in clusters. Cinnamon is the bark of a tree, the cinnamon tree, originally from the island of Ceylon, but now cultivated in our tropical colonies. With the point of a pruning knife, the bark of the branches is detached in strips, which are laid together according to size, a narrower on a wider strip, and are then exposed to the sun, whereupon they curl up like quills, one within another, in the process of drying. From the look of cinnamon, as it is sold by the grocer, said Marie, you can easily see that it is a bark, but I didn't know what country it came from, or what tree produced it. From the Molucca Islands, noted as the chief source of the world's supply of spices, we get, in addition to cloves, nutmeg, which is now successfully raised in the colonies. The nutmeg plant is a graceful tree which grows nearly ten meters high. In its rounded head and thick foliage it resembles the orange tree. Its leaves are large, oval, glossy green on the upper side, and whitish underneath. Its blossoms, small, bell-shaped, and pendant like those of the lily of the valley, are very sweet-smelling. The fruit, as large as a medium-sized peach, is composed of three parts. First comes a fleshy, edible exterior, which at maturity breaks in two. Next to this is a network of slender strands, very bright scarlet in color, which yields the spice known as mace, and finally in the center lies the seed, or nutmeg proper, which is used as spice. This latter is an oval-shaped body of the size of a large olive. It's fresh-scented, oily, and very firm, with reddish veins running through it. Vanilla grows in damp and shady forests in the coast district of Guiana and Colombia. It is a plant with a slender stalk that takes the form of a runner and interlaces the neighboring branches, stretching even from one tree to another, and resembling a small cord covered with beautiful green leaves. Its flowers are large and graceful in shape, white inside and greenish-yellow outside. The fruit, the part to which we give the name vanilla, is sought for its balsamic, sweet odor and its mild, very agreeable taste. It is composed of a viscous pulp and a multitude of very small seeds. In shape and appearance it is long and cylindrical, black, slightly curved, and the size of one's finger. Vanilla is used to flavor custard, whipped cream, and other similar dishes, of which you children never refuse a second helping. End of Part 12